For our series of the AEC's competition talks with leading experts, we have today Fiesel Buston. Fiesel is the Fellow of the Research Foundation Flanders and researcher at the Institute for Consumer Competition and Markets of the Catholic University of Leuven. A graduate of KU Leuven, the University of Sydney and Harvard University, Friso has conducted research on abuse of dominance by online platforms and their EU competition law, among other topics. I am particularly pleased to do this podcast with Friso, as he was the winner of the ADC Competition Policy Award in 2019, beating a very strong field of excellent papers for that distinction. Friso, welcome to the ADC. I'm delighted to do this podcast with you. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Well, Friso, to start off and to, to draw some lessons from all your research to the digital debate that is currently ongoing, I would mention that many in the competition community have been defending the need for an entirely new toolbox for competition analysis. And your analysis suggests that most competition issues raised by online platforms have a precedent in the telecom sector and are simply a repetition of long-established competition concerns. So basically, old wine in new bottles, I would say. So what were the main points of similarities and differences you found between the issues raised by online platforms today and telecoms? Right. Uh, what actually led me to my current research is that uh, I saw a lot of similarity between these supposedly new anti-competitive concerns surrounding online platforms and the, the old concerns we've had with telecom companies, uh, telcos, for a, for a long time. And so I started looking at those more in depth. And in fact, what I saw as, is that these concerns often relate to the same type of conduct. Uh, we have access issues, uh, for example, the discrimination of downstream competitors, serial acquisition activity, sort of all things we've seen before in a bit of a, a different form. Now, of course, these types of conduct can only be the same because there's some similarity between the undertakings themselves, the platforms we see now and the telecom companies that have been us for a long time. In both cases, we're talking about essentially networks that a variety of businesses use to get their content, products and services to customers. These networks benefit from economies of scale and evidently network effects, uh, which leads to fairly or even very concentrated markets in some cases. And uh, relevantly, these, uh, these networks, both platforms and telecom operators, are vertically integrated, which means that they often end up competing uh, with the businesses that they actually help with distribution. So there, there can be a conflict of interest there. Of course, those are the similarities. But on the other hand, it needs to be stressed that platforms and telecom companies, uh, telcos, are also quite different in many respects. I think I mean, some of the stars started describing these platforms as utilities, but that's a qualification that I don't think is, is very helpful. After all, I can, I can live without Facebook, at least I think so, uh, but it would be harder to live without uh, my local water company, for example. Also, uh, utility regulation is always quite heavy-handed, while these more dynamic platform companies are perhaps not a good fit for that kind of regulation. When I look at telecoms, I, I do so not to simply, you know, take what we've done there and transpose it to platforms blindly, but rather as a source of inspiration to see what has worked in the past and what hasn't, and then see how we might adapt to the current economic reality. So sometimes there is a case to be made for transposing such regulations, other times there isn't. To take a good example is perhaps portability. We've seen this first in the telecom sphere in the form of mobile phone number portability, which was quite a a successful intervention. In fact, consumers used to be locked into their cell phone provider because they couldn't uh, take their number with them to a competitor uh, after they could. 
well, uh, they were less locked in, switching costs were lower, this decreased the market power of those uh, telcos, uh, meaning that prices uh, in the end decreased. Some research on that. So all in all, quite successful. And you have to start thinking about, well, how does this look in the platform sphere? We're starting to see this now with data portability, uh, Article 20 of the GDPR, but also I guess the GDPR is sort of inspiring others around the world, uh, California, a number of other jurisdictions. But there's quite some difficulty here because a cell phone number is, is 10 digits. Um, if I want to download my Facebook data, it probably amounts to a couple of gigabytes. Um, and I can download that data, but then I can't really do anything with it. I can't go to another social network and simply uh, upload it there. So for this right to be effective, uh, you need additional, uh, additional mechanisms. You really want to port your data from one platform to the other directly and without a set of sort of common standards that becomes impossible. So regulatory intervention like this becomes a lot more difficult. We're seeing some interesting initiatives though from the platforms themselves. For example, there's now the, the data transfer project uh, where Facebook, Google, Twitter, et cetera, are working together to come up with these common standards. Uh, and they recently had their uh, first breakthrough, so to say, where you can now uh, transfer your pictures directly from uh, Facebook to Google. So it's a first step, uh, but there's a long way to go, as you can imagine. And it is quite interesting if, if we see their striking similarities, as you were mentioning, but I, I think it is also fair to say uh, distinguish two main differences, I think. To the extent of the network effects, I think in this case the, the network effects are so strong, so that might add a, a further complexity. And the second one has to do with time. Everything goes so fast that, as you say, it's a challenging task to design regulation and we have less time to do so because otherwise, as I think Commissioner Vestire recently said, we might end up regulating something that is already not an issue anymore because uh, the industry evolves very fast. Now, finally, I want to challenge you in one thing more. If you ask a teenager on, you know, what's more important, whether if it's access to water as a utility or Facebook, I don't know what they would answer. So, <laughs> okay. Now, moving on, moving on. Another recurring uh, theme in digital competition, and you were mentioning just before conflicts of interest of, of the fact that they compete in different layers of the value chain, these operators in both digital and telecom. And one of the issues of discussion currently is the problem of self-preferencing, and namely the balancing act between self-preferencing for legitimate ends and the self-preference that is aimed at excluding uh, competitors. And what lessons in this regard do you think we could draw from the history of the telecom sector? Right. Um, yeah, you're, I think you're very right to say that self-preferencing is sort of the issue of the moment. I can, I can hardly think of an abuse of dominance investigation involving online platforms that doesn't relate somehow to uh, self-preferencing right now. Of course, Amazon has been the, the prime target of such allegations. Uh, I think there's been a total of five investigations. Uh, two have been closed now in Austria and Germany, but DC keeps looking at it, uh, the European Commission. The same goes for the Italian Competition Authority, and I think even the Luxembourgish one. And they're all sort of looking at the same thing, at how Amazon uh, preferences the distribution of its own products over those of independent sellers on its uh, marketplace. Uh, another high-level case, of course, is the complaint of Spotify against Apple, because Apple allegedly um, uses its app store to preference its own music streaming service over Spotify. 
And as you've also mentioned, this is an issue that we've uh, seen in telecoms before, actually at various points in time. The most recent one is, of course, net neutrality, the issue of internet service providers preferencing their own internet traffic, the traffic coming from their services, for example, a video streaming service rather than those of competitors, let's say a Netflix. There's actually an older example that uh, I think is also quite instructive. It's in the United States, there was this, this issue with cable television providers who were also vertically integrated into content production. So they had their own programs. And then the concern was that they would uh, preference these programs over those of independent programmers. Now that was solved uh, with the 1992 Cable Act. I mean, solved is, is a big word. Maybe it was addressed in the 1992 Cable Act. And what that act did was adopt a regime where there was, first of all, a non-discrimination rule. These uh, cable TV distributors could not discriminate against unaffiliated, so independent content. And, well, to show that this rule had been breached was fairly easy, at least easier than in uh, most antitrust cases. You simply had to show this differentiated treatment and the fact that you were harmed by it. And what's even more interesting is that they set up a separate administrative procedure because they recognized that in digital markets, as you've mentioned earlier, things go very fast, so the need for speed is, is really great. And so this administrative procedure sort of cut the time short to handle a complaint. Now, we're seeing sort of parallels in the EU now, perhaps with the, uh, the newfound use of interim measures which is a welcome uh, change, perhaps uh, driven in part by the, the Google investigation that took uh, no less than seven years from start to finish. Of course, very difficult case, but at the same time, you know, by the time the decision came, I think uh, most of the original complainants had been driven out of business uh, already. So uh, a clear standard and speed are basically the two essential components that were there in this uh, telecoms regime. And we're starting to see proposals for that in, in competition now, as I mentioned, interim measures, of course. But in Germany, they're now looking at the draft 10th amendment to their Competition Act, where actually the idea is, uh, if I understand it correctly, to um, allow the Bundeskartellamt, their competition authority, to designate certain platforms as being of paramount significance for competition across markets. And I think we can sort of get guess which platforms those would be, to then uh, allow the Bundeskartellamt to put on them an obligation of, well, non-differentiated treatment, non-discrimination. So that's, again, it's an easier standard because at, at this point, I think the, the competition law standard is, is a bit fuzzy. We've had the Google search decision, of course, uh, which is some guiding light, but I think to, to come to a clear standard, perhaps we'd have to wait for decisions, uh, for example, in the Amazon cases, in the case of Spotify, if that turns into a... Uh, real investigation, and perhaps once once all dust has settled around those, you know, we come out with a clear standard that has the same effect without having to again, you know, change competition law as uh, some would like to do now. Yeah, it'd be interesting. To see. <laughs> well, uh, picking up on the changes to competition law, there's one thing that has been changed, for example, uh, in Germany, which is the rules for notification, and this aimed precisely at another topic that I would like to introduce in our conversation, which is large digital firms that have been actively acquiring startups. And there's there's been an ongoing debate as to the effects of these mergers on innovation and competition. And what I would ask to you is how do the last 100 years of the telecom sector help us shine a little bit of light on this topic? Right, yeah, the, the active acquisition activities is uh, also another uh, big issue at this time. And, well, you can sort of see where it's coming from. These big online platforms have, of course, been very dynamic. But at this point, perhaps most of the innovation coming from them is rather incremental, while 
uh, startups on the other hand have a greater potential for this kind of disruptive innovation if only for the reason that you know incumbents aren't very well placed uh, for that now a solution to this at least from the from the platform perspective can be to start acquiring a lot of these uh, startups and bring their innovation in-house but there's a danger to this and then we come to this this loaded term of killer acquisitions mm-hmm. you know these situations where a platform buys a startup to then simply neutralize the yeah. product mm-hmm. you know shelve it and of course you know, not every product that goes on the shelf is necessarily a killer acquisition. Sometimes there are uh, fair reasons for this. Uh, maybe the integration with say, the, the mother platform, so to say, didn't work as expected. Or maybe maybe this was a sort of acquihire all along where really the, um, the platform was interested in the startup's people rather than its product. But point remains, if, if a platform does acquire a a competitor or even a potential competitor just simply to, to kill it off, to shelf the product, and then there is an issue there. Of course, when talking about these these problematic acquisitions, the discussion quickly turns to Facebook, Instagram, perhaps the most uh, discussed merger, but importantly, uh, not exactly a killer acquisition, only for the fact that Facebook you know, bought Instagram to then significantly invest in it, uh, turn it into a sort of big uh, second social media player. Of course, you know, it remains an, an acquisition, meaning that a competitor or perhaps at the time potential competitor was taken off the market. And well, today, a lot of people regret that. Uh, looking at Instagram now, you see a, a potentially formidable competitor of Facebook if it weren't owned by Facebook. Of course, and there's sort of difficult question, well, would Instagram have grown into this competitor if it wasn't for the investments of Facebook? Reality is, is probably somewhere in between. Um, but it's uh, an interesting question nevertheless. So I think the real challenge at this point is to sort of learn from those cases, cases that were actually less present in telecoms. Uh, we only had one, there's one significant uh, sort of intervention there a uh, hundred years ago in the US when uh, AT&T, uh, its uh, patents were expiring. And to, well, to prevent competition, they just started buying up every startup that started to enter their sphere. And then that's, of course, something you want to avoid here in the platform sphere, too. So one solution to that is perhaps adding more weight, giving more value to this notion of potential competition, perhaps see it a bit more broadly. And yeah, that could be an antidote also to more radical alternatives. Uh, now there's even talk of uh, undoing past acquisitions. There's uh, Professor Tim Wu from Columbia Law School. There's even a uh, presidential candidate and Senator Elizabeth Warren, who in her presidential platform, political platform in this case, is saying that she wants to undo or appoint people who will undo a number of big acquisitions. Um, I think that might be too radical a change, I think, for now. Um, maybe we can start by learning lessons uh, from these acquisitions that some people regret and then see from there. Well, important challenges that rest on shoulders of competition agencies and which can benefit a lot from research like the one that you have done. So congratulations again on the award and thank you for this podcast. It was a great pleasure to talk with you. Thank you so much. It was a great conversation.